Hi there. This is Laquita Thompson, the owner of Extreme Heat Sports Management. And this week on the I Am podcast, we're doing something different. We have a special guest who will be sharing historical moments in sports. That's right. We're going back in history, sports history, and you don't want to miss it. Tune in each week to hear great moments of athletes that we've heard of right here on the I Am podcast with a very special guest, a celebrity right out of the city of Houston, Texas. Enjoy. I am, I am, I am, I am, I am legendary. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and people all over the globe, Thanks for tuning in to today's special edition of the I Am Podcast. Today's guest is nothing less than a legend. He's a triple threat, a superstar activist, an award-winning journalist, and a sportscaster like none this town has ever seen. Ladies and gentlemen, if you were to list the 50 most influential athletes of the past 50 years, today's guest will have interviewed just about all of them. Hailing from the University of Houston, by way of the Ebony Worthing Coats, the Hall of Famer, Ralph Cooper! I know you have interviewed um, celebrities, you know, super athletes. So I want you to give me, and you can give me your top one or your top three highlighted moments with some of those, uh, you know, important people that you had an opportunity to work with. Like you're talking about Jesse Owens, like what are some key moments during that time that we don't know about that you have the inside history regarding? Well, for one, the uh, Muhammad Ali, you know, you 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 had watched Cassius Clay become Muhammad Ali. You saw him in 1965 when he beat when he upset Sonny Liston and he became the heavyweight champion of the world. At that time, you were still in high school. You had no clue that in 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 four or five years you would meet Muhammad Ali and you could interview him one on one and. What amazed you about him was when you interviewed him one-on-one was how his mind seemed to be in other places. It wasn't just you. His mind was in other... It was like his mind was always ticking on how he was going to not only be better in the ring, but how he was going to be better in person. What do you do? Who? Who are you? You know the judge? My Lord Wells out here. You know the judge? And, he, and I said, yeah. And blah, 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 that kind of stuff. And then, then he would answer all your questions. And he was also very encouraging, you know, wishing you the best. Is that it? You you really through? Like you were supposed to ask him another question. So that was one. But the other one, I I mentioned uh, Jesse Owens. Now, we had read about Jesse Owens in high school, earlier in life, being in Berlin and running against uh, the Germans and others in in the Olympics just before World War II, 1936. And to be in the same room with him, no matter what time of day it was, uh, was really, really, really something. All you had to do was ask about four or five different questions, and he would he would share all of that history with you about uh, being around the Germans and, and and a whole lot of other stuff that was going on in 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 in, uh, in Germany at that time, and how he was not the only black there, and how 
the NAACP didn't want him to go. They felt that he uh, should protest and not go, and that his father uh, indicated to him that that was something he had been working for all of his life, and no knock on the NAACP, but this is the first time you ever heard of him, been doing all this running, and now you hear from them in regards to not going. So you get all those kind of stories. Then you interview Satchel Page. And the thing that was amazing about Satchel Page, the great Negro League baseball player, was how long his arms were. And for the first time, you notice how big he had big hands. Like Ali had big hands. These people had big, 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 big hands. So you notice the big hands and, and how long his arms were. So you interview him for, in the Astrodome and you're sitting on the, one of the, in the dugout on the bench. And then after about four or five months, he said, young man, I should have known you five or six months ago. And I said, why? He said, I, I, I'm, they, they're writing a book about me. He said, you ask better questions than the people who I hired or paid for ask questions. That was a compliment that I never forgot coming from, from him at that particular time. And then you, 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 I mean, it's, it's just so many. Uh, you get to spend a day with Gail Sayers. Again, the great running back, you get to pick him up at the airport and you're with him all day. Most people don't know this because of who, what you're doing. You're in a position to take him to historically black high schools at that time. We were the days. My, my, my particular role that day with Gail Sales, pick him up at the airport and take him to Yates, Worthen, Wheatley, Cashmere, Booger T, Washington, Carverdale, which was black, Aldean Carver. You couldn't go to Aldean schools other than Aldean Carver at that time. A BCL more and several other schools. So I'm riding around with Gail Sayers all day getting all this history. I'm getting a story from it, but I'm also taking him to meet these coaches to try to get blacks into the University of Kansas who were who who qualified as student athletes to be uh, going to school. There. So those are just some of them. We took Ray Robinson, uh, Joe Lewis. Joe Lewis had big, big hands too. Joe Lewis had big hands. George Foreman. They had huge hands. But the biggest hands I ever seen on an athlete. He could hold 13 baseballs at one time. No way. Don't Google him up when I say that. James Rodney. He had he could put 13 baseballs in his hands at one time. <laughs> Google it up, Isaiah. Wow. James Rodney Richard, a pitcher of 13 baseballs in his hands at one time before he had a stroke and everything. He had the biggest hands I've ever seen, and he actually could fit these 13 baseballs in his hand at one time. And 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 the, and the thing about it was he talked a lot of noise, and he struck out people. People would get sick when they had to bat against him. They knew they were going to face him the next day. They'd come down with the flu, although it was in the middle of the summer here in Houston, 100 degrees. <laughs> <laughs> so those are some, but Sugar Ray Robinson was another one that I met that I grew up with. And Sugar Ray Robinson, I never will forget, how could you turn down a job with Muhammad Ali? And he said, little, he called you little buddy. He said, little buddy, let me tell you something. Everything he's doing, I did it big and twice. He said, I had a barber with me. I had a manicurist. I had a person that did my feet. I had a, 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 a barber. He said, a cook. I had all of that traveling with me. And he said, I even had a little midget. I kept a midget around just to make everybody happy. <laughs> he said, and all these people were getting paid. He said, now all I want to do is be at home by 9 o'clock every night. I had my share of the sweets. You understand what I'm saying? So you meet all these different people and you get all these great, great, great stories. You meet them. Um, before Zena Garrison and Lori McNeil and before Vina and Serena Williams and Naomi Osaka, mm -hmm. um, 
men, uh, great women in tennis. But one of them that I met that never really gets any credit is Ann Kozier. She was out of Baltimore. She ended up being a great tennis coach at the University of North. She came out of Morgan State. And uh, thanks to Coach Herbert Provost of Texas Southern University, I was able to meet her because, see, at that time, you know, you, you get to kind of believe in your own smell, you know what I'm talking about? So, <laughs> yeah. Coach Provost called one day. He was a tennis coach at Texas Southern, Herbert Provost. So he called and said, I want you to interview this tennis player. I said, man, I don't interview. Uh, uh, is it on the ash? He said, no, it's not on the ash. So I said, well, 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 see, I just interviewed football, basketball, and baseball players. He said, no, no, no. I'm going to pick you up and you come ride with me. So we rode out to Memorial here in Houston. It was the Virginia Slims around 72. And I met Ann Kozier, and, uh, who became a, a real friend. And I had no clue who she was before that. But she was the only black female on the pro tour at that particular time. And see, to show you how things have changed, they stayed with families. Mm-hmm. Because unless you were Billie Jean King or somebody... You didn't make that kind of, I asked you to make that kind of money to stay in a hotel, so you stayed with various families. And she lived with a family out in the Memorial area. You know, make a long story short. So those are some of the things that, that people, you know, the bright side of it, you ran into racism. But hey, I expected it. I had been, the thing that changed my life, I had been a meter reader. When I read meters, I went in the neighborhoods, I never knew that there was some, some bad white folks. Mm who call you names. I had seen all of this stuff, of course. I had seen what happened in Birmingham on television, but I had never really, because of where I was raised, I never had really been around white people to the degree I was until I was 17 and got this job at the light company, and I was one of the first blacks to read light meters. And then I was real good at it, and then they sent me to Bel Air, MLK, which was South Park at that time. When you lived in work, when you lived in Sunnyside, when you got up around Jutland, what B.H. Grab School was, when you went on the other side, that was white. That was all white. They had some of the most vicious dogs ever looking for a black male to bite. And you had to read these light meters. And then you went to, uh, I, I where North Shore is now, um, for your vowel day. You went to where Cashmere is now. That was white. You went to where Sterling is. What was Sterling High School? Yeah. Okay. White. That, that school was built for whites. The neighborhood was white. Then you went over to what, Madison. I remember when they, they first built that neighborhood. I had to go in there and read meters. And some of the people were vicious in regards to black people. And, uh, you know, they would come up and ask you, did you know what you were doing? Boy, and all this kind of N words and all this kind of stuff. And, but the, the supervisor I had, had had kind of programmed me that I couldn't, you know, you couldn't, you were, you were not supposed to fight these people. <laughs> Although wow. you may have gotten beaten, you still wanted to fight some of these people. You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. So took it out in another way. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't have computers to read light meters with. We penciled in the numbers. And your memory could always go bad with a pencil. Mm-hmm. And you could go and digit up or digit down. And as a result of going to digit up or digit down, guess what happened? Your mm. deal was out of whack for out months. Of whack. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You didn't have any respect for this little black boy reading your light meter at that time. Wow. That's history about you that I, I did not know that you also yeah. had that career. Right. I, I, I have no hate. 
When I got ready to go to Dr. King's funeral, I was working at the light company. That was one of the places I was working at. So I went and told my supervisor, his name was Groda, that I was, I needed to take off. I needed to be off for a few days because I was going to Dr. King's funeral. So this white man who chain smoked, I never will forget he was chain smoked, but he nearly choked on a cigarette when I told him what I was about to do. So he said, you actually going to Dr. King's funeral? I said, yes, sir. And he, uh, I told him I was going with an uncle. We were driving. My uncle couldn't get an air flight. And nobody, I said, no one in my family wants to go. They have no desire going with him to Mississippi, Alabama, and all these different places. I said, not even my mother. My mother don't even want me to go. So nobody in our family would go with him. All the airplanes, we didn't have hop, we didn't have Bush Airport, and we had Hobby. All the air flights were booked up to Atlanta. And that's how we ended up driving. So I said, I'm going, I'm going to ride with my uncle. I said, but my mother doesn't really want me to go, but I'm going to go. So he said, Cooper, I, I can't believe you're going to his funeral. He said, that's a, he said, that's a fantastic thing. He said, don't worry about missing any pay. Now, this is 1968. You know, you're hearing all these various things that don't worry about no pay. He said, but can I get you to do one favor? Bring me some newspapers back from that area, Atlanta or whatever. So sure enough, I bought him some newspapers back and he kept his word. I didn't miss getting paid. But then he pulled me to the side. He wanted, he wanted to know the whole trip <laughs> from, from leaving Houston with I-10 not being what it is now. See, I-10 didn't, I-10 stopped it. And it, it, it went to New Orleans, but it didn't go all the way through New Orleans at that particular time. So you had all, you, you, you shared with him the whole trip and how, how, to show you how things were. My uncle, we had a, the car went out of time in, in a place, Morgan City, I think it was. And so we had to stop and get the time fixed. So there was a student there, a white student with a backpack on. Are we all right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a white student with a backpack, right? So he was, he was standing by the service station where my uncle was getting the car refixed or whatever, tuned back up. And so him and I, he was my age, he was 18 or 19, and he he saw the Texas license place. He said, where are you all headed? I said, we're going to the Dr. King's film. And so he said, well, I am too. He said, I'm hitchhiking. He was a student at LSU. He said, I'm hitchhiking to Dr. King's film. He said, if you think I can get a ride with you? I said, I don't know, man. My uncle kind of paranoid. So sure enough, boy, are you out of your blank, blank man? We're going to ride through Mississippi and parts of Louisiana and Georgia with a white boy in the car with us <laughs> who may kill us. So anyway, to make a long story short, I kept, I said, well, he knows, he knows all the shortcuts to get to New Orleans, I mean, to get right. to Atlanta. I said, you, you know, I said, you can put him in the, you can put him in the back seat. He said, now you want to put him in the back seat? He, we had a station wagon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> After all that putting and screaming to my uncle and battling with him, he did, we got ready to go. We got ready to pull off. He said, tell him to come on. And so sure enough, I went to tell him to get in the back. He said, no, put him in the front. He, for about 100 miles, this white three men were riding down the highway going to Dr. King's funeral in a station wagon with the white guy in the middle. And this went on for about 100 plus miles before my uncle finally felt comfortable enough to, uh, uh, to, uh, let him get in the back seat or whatever. But but to make a long story short, I, I thought my uncle was a preacher, right? 
Mm-hmm. Wilson here. They know him in they knew him in the third ward. Some of them. And I said, you know, something came up when we we were on the way back and we were talking, and I say, you know, we traveled all the way over here without any kind of weapon or anything. He said, you must be really retarded. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he said, look in the glove compartment. He had a little piece by the tire I found out later. You know, when you change the tires, mm-hmm. he had another piece in there, and then he had another piece up under the seat. We were traveling really with three guns, and I never had any clue. But the, but thanks to that white guy who was a student at LSU, he got us he got us to within maybe five, I'm sorry, maybe three football fields of Ebenezer Church where the funeral was. Mm. We never would have gotten there yeah. Yeah. on time to get into that march where we got if it had not been for him. So see, it's that history again in regards to the things that you run into. And, but but that, that racism thing, it's hard not to hate people, uh, but it's harder in my opinion to hate people. So I have no hate. I've been, been, I've been around some harsh white people and some harsh black people, but hey, I have no hate. Thanks for tuning in to this special edition of the I Am Podcast, brought to you by Extreme Heat Sports and Fat Bars Records and Multimedia. We'll be back again next week with more of this must-hear interview. Until then, be well.